Hello, and welcome to 37th and the World, the official podcast of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Gajia is a student-run flagship publication of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. On 37th and the World, we dive into key global trends and speak directly with the experts working on the issues in areas ranging from conflict and security, human rights and development, science and technology, society and culture, business and economics, and global governance. The decolonization that spanned across the 20th century dramatically reshaped our world. What often escapes common knowledge about this period is that anti-colonial intellectuals and statesmen did not only envision decolonization as a campaign for national sovereignty, but as an effort to fundamentally counter global hierarchies of material wealth and race. Adam Gedachu narrates these transcontinental efforts of Pan-African leaders in her 2019 book, Worldmaking After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination. In this interview, Jujia explores the historical insights of her book, as well as how contemporary projects for worldmaking can learn from the past century. We additionally discuss further lessons for a world after empire from the volume guest edited by Gedachu, Imagining Global Futures. As our first question, what compelled you to start research for worldmaking after empire, the rise and fall of self-determination? For example, plenty of historical literature and political theory had already existed on the decolonization period, but the geographical shift from the Asian-African axis of the 1955 Badung Conference to the intellectual traditions of the Black Atlantic is a novel conceptual adjustment for me. Furthermore, you challenge the standard historical narration of an inevitable transition from empire to nation when anti-colonial thinkers in fact intended decolonization as a demand for global change beyond any singular country's sovereign independence. Great. Um, well, thanks for that question and thanks for having me. Um, I think I was prompted to write world making out of a, several different um, interests and commitments. Um, one is that um, I was in um, a joint PhD program of political science and African-American studies. So I was very interested in and came to graduate school wanting to work on the intellectual and political histories, traditions of um, Black internationalism and Pan-Africanism. And a lot of that work on Black internationalism had really focused on the early 20th century and in particular the interwar period. So one ambition and one reason to focus on the Black Atlantic kind of period of decolonization is to trace the um that that intellectual tradition into the period of formal decolonization um so that was one ambition of the book uh the other you know was a kind of more presentist i began to write the dissertation um uh in the wake of in the context of um the bush presidency in the united states and the obama presidency in particular um NATO had just intervened in Libya when I started working on my proposal, and that came, of course, after the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. So it seemed to me that, um, you know, the kind of the world order we were living in was being rapidly transformed, and especially certain kinds of norms around non-intervention, sovereign equality, um, which had been really important to the post-war period, were, were, were waning or were being undermined. Um, and so I wanted to think about what that moment had been, where those norms came from, and how some of some figures within um, 
you know, who were anti-colonial nationalists of various kind imagined the imagined what say international equality looked like and what it was meant to do. So it was it was also kind of against this contemporary backdrop that um, I turned to this history. Your book calls upon a lot of big names from what Cedric Robinson calls the radical black tradition across the United States and the Anglophone Caribbean and Africa. For example, a few names are W.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, George Padmore, C.L.R. James, Eric Williams, Kwame Nkrumah, Namdi Azukawa, Julius Nairi, and Michael Manley. What made you decide to select this broad cohort as the center of your research, and what did they allow us to see? What voices or groups are left out when we focus on a group so overwhelmingly comprised of major intellectual leaders and statesmen? Yeah, great. Thanks for that question. Um, part of the reason, um, well, the way that I got to the set of figures, again, was twofold. Um, one, um, you know, I was um, interested in part in tracking the networks and connections between these figures. So partly many of these figures, as I try to show in the introduction, were connected to each other in various ways and sometimes very intimately. So George Padmore, for instance, served as um, an advisor in Nkrumah's presidency. C.L.R. James was very influential and important in connecting um, Padmore to Nkrumah and James had, had you know, um, mentored um, in, uh, both Nkrumah and Williams. So they have lots of kind of intellectual and political connections to each other. Um, the other thing was I was interested in doing a project that comprised both the Caribbean and Africa and I was driven in part by wanting to examine very specific um, uh, projects. So I was interested in federation, for instance, and there were really, I think, I, I was looking for figures who would help me navigate the, the specific political projects I was interested in. So, and these are the right to self-determination, um, the um, federation, so, so there were specific uh, political projects I was interested in, and there were figures that I picked the figures who would help me navigate those specific projects. Um, now, as your question suggests, of course, there are many um, uh, limitations to focusing on on so uh, on this set of figures. One, um, of course, as you and others have described, it's a it's a list of all men. Um, uh, and it, you know that it, it and because it's focused especially on statesmen and people who held positions of power within new nation states it it it, it obscures uh the social movements uh and you know everyday projects that generated decolonization that were the central to the project of decolonization so um uh, CLR James, for instance, in describing, you know, the um, Ghana revolution says, um, you know, there's a way that we attribute the transformation and the independence of Ghana to a lot of, you know, Europe and American educated intellectuals and elites, but really, he says it was the market women who were the central actors in the in the revolution. Um, and he says that because he thinks he's, he, you know, the marketplace became the site for uh, debate, for discussion, for, for sharing information, for collective 
actively mobilizing. And so you um, miss that kind of layer of social and political history when you focus on kind of intellectuals and elites and the space of what what we might call the high politics of decolonization. Um, so you you miss that kind of um, uh, social the social character of the revolution. Um, and the the other thing, of course, is that it's a project that's delimited by language and by the British Empire. Right? It's focused on Anglophone figures, um, and uh, it in in that sense it misses really important overlaps in and similar kinds of ways of thinking across across you know other empires uh, so and i don't mean to suggest that you know this was a singular way of thinking about decolonization in some sense i think it's representative of wider debates and that's partly why i focused on it toward the End of the book, you describe how the failures of post-colonial countries to deliver peace and development undermined the ambitions of self-determination beyond state sovereignty and helped render the neoliberal economic order that ended states' capacities to make demands for a more egalitarian world order. Counterfactuals in history are always, of course, tricky and often professionally frowned upon. But do you view the neoliberal restructuring of the global economy beginning around the 1970s as inevitable? To what degree, if at all, did the counter-hegemonic proposals of the anti-colonial world makers have a real chance of global implementation? Yeah, that's a really good, good, good question. Um, you know, I think it's likely that um, the proposals uh, put forward under the new international economic order, one, of course, um, there, uh, you know, it's really important to understand those processes as Christy Thornton's book has recently shown us that uh, as part of a wider history, a longer history of struggles around um, around trying to secure better economic terms for peripheral or global South states that that began even before uh, World War One. Um, so, so on the one hand, I think you know, I think it's not an either or picture. There are moments and occasions where these kinds of proposals can make can make incremental interventions and can, given the right balance of bargaining power, push the conversation in directions that it might not have gone. Um, but in the case of the 1970s, um, precisely the moment where there was momentum around the new international economic order was a, a moment in which um, the position bargaining positions of the third world were undermined um, in, given the debt crisis in particular, right? Um, the, so, so whereas in the early instance, there was some attempts to um, at least you know, meet some of the minimal demands of the new international economic order, uh, you know, by the end of the decade, and especially by the time um, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher are in office, that that moment has closed. Um, so I think there was a, an opening to make some moves, um, but there were, but that was always going to be a limited set of uh, possibilities. And, you know, I think, um, uh, world systems theorists uh, and dependency theorists like Samir Amin and Emmanuel Wall uh, Wallerstein would always say that was going to be a futile project, right? Uh, that um, it was never going to be re realized. And it wasn't going to be realized both because 
the kind of um, forces of, of um, you know, the metropolitan power would never concede. Um, but most importantly for them, that the success of something like the new international economic order would actually not accomplish that the aim of equality, um, uh, but instead, like further integration into the global economy would um, undermine or or deepen the hierarchies that it was meant to solve. Now, for this next longer question, this has been something I've pondered whenever I read about past efforts to fundamentally change the world or radical worldviews. I, I usually can't help but think of the classic quotation from Karl Marx's The 18th Brumier of Louis Bonaparte as follows, the social revolution of the 19th century cannot take its poetry from the past, but only from the future. It cannot begin with itself before it has stripped away all superstition about the past. The former revolutions required recollections of past world history in order to smother their own contents. The revolution of the 19th century must let the dead bury their dead in order to arrive at its own content. The other phrase went beyond the content, here the content goes beyond the phrase. I think we see a bit of this issue when we go into those making demand for the New International Economic Order, or NEIO, in the 1970s, such as um, Neure and Manley, which appeared to extend Marx's theories of surplus value from the late 19th and early 20th century Western industrial workers' movements on a global scale. Proponents analogize the relationship between countries from the global south and the global north to the exploitative relationship between the proletariat and bourgeoisie, kind of similar also with what you mentioned with dependency theorists or Samir Amin and Emmanuel Wallerstein. However, leaders who made this argument often elided the eternal class struggles within their own countries to prioritize concerns over international inequality, which you also mentioned Amin was among um, the critics of that type of proposal. Although social revolution may be a stretch to apply to the 21st century, NEIO advocates retreated from interwar calls for vanguardist revolution to demands for a more redistributionist egalitarian internationalism. How might those who strive for a more just world order today learn both from the past anti-colonial world makers and arrive at the content of their own current um, political circumstances? You've previously argued that we cannot simply recreate past visions such as the NEIO's welfare model. Um, one specific contemporary theoretician who comes to mind to me is Georgetown professor Alufemi Taiwo and the constructive view of reparations he develops in his 2022 book, Reconsidering Reparations. Taiwo reimagines reparations by both adjusting past focus on a reconciliation or reparative harm-based model to one prioritizing material future-orientated programs toward broader structural change. This constructive reconsideration both avoids historical parochialism and anticipates a reparative model for the future disproportionate cost of the global south will burden from climate change. I remember that the, the NIEO, you described how a lot of this wasn't a specifically reparative model, but I'm interested to see how you might differ from Taiwo's or other views. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I differ that much. I think um, I think uh, Professor Taiwo has a similar interest in drawing on, um, you know, intellectuals, political histories that are different from our our own time um, and trying to think about what they might offer us in the present, while at the same time recognizing that the present predicaments, questions we have about our, our world today are very different from, you know, the ones that a, a previous generation had, right? So, you know, I think one, I think really the thing that's really compelling to me about the new international economic order it is a vision that you know takes the world as one unit that it is 
that the world has to be the all of us have to be responsible for 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 the world and we have to think at the scale of the global if we're going to resolve central central questions in in their case the question of deep forms of economic inequality so there's a kind of um ambitiousness to that project of global justice as they conceived it that I think is really important. Now, there are a lot of assumptions they make embedded in that vision that we really can't afford to make, right? Um, most importantly, of course, um, they imagine a global economic order still predicated on growth, a model in which economic growth can be assumed to be a kind of ongoing ever-present possibility for everybody. And equality in part depends for them on that on that continuation of growth. You know, I think living in the context of climate catastrophe, it's hard to, it's it's a theory of egalitarianism that's dependent on there being increasing amounts of economic growth, right? Further fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. That's just not a very viable model, right? Um, but I think, um, you know, this, I think this, you know, we've seen it with the pandemic. We have seen it with economic recession of a decade ago. Like, it is the case that there are a set of deep global questions um, that require thinking at that level, thinking at the scale of the global and I think um, you mentioned uh, uh, Professor Tai Wo's work, who who's trying to do this work of of thinking about a, a previous framing of a language of justice reparations and thinking about how that language could be transformed for the present. Um, there's a group called the Progressive International. Um, uh, uh, run partly or at least founded in part by Yanis Varoufakis, who is, of course, um, uh, finance minister in the Greek Syriza government um, and others who, who have now turned to the new international economic order to think about how, even if it's not quite that exact thing, how that, you know, set of uh, proposals and imaginations of the 1970s might help to inform you know, you know contemporary questions of um, uh, global economic justice. Now for our, our last question. You recently guest edited the Boston Review's Imagining Global Futures, a volume that explores possibilities toward a better world beyond neoliberalism. How might any of the pieces in this collection contribute to, quote, the task of rethinking our imperial past and present in the service of imagining an anti-imperial future your concluding statement in World Making After Empire. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, um, the idea for the Boston uh, Review volume um, emerged from a sense that, um, you know, the contemporary moment is marked by a series of crises, um, interstate war, uh, the pandemic, rising authoritarianism. And the thought is, is something like crises moments of crises can generate new kinds of possibilities. So that's one kind of um, framing of the of the volume. The second framing of the volume is that, and this might this is more connected to the uh, closing of world making, that the global South, a space marked, of course, by long histories of imperialism, um, 
um, and by traditions of anti-imperialism as well, can be a site for generating new kinds of global features, new imaginations of, of, of political form, of economy, and so forth. So many of the, many, not all of the essays in the volume are trying to think about, say, how a place like uh, Palestine can serve as a a, a site of rethinking the project of decolonization. Why the Middle East, you know, where this, the nation state form has been most problematic, um, helps to generate new visions of decentralized feder federation, right? Uh, uh, you know, how, how kind of despite the challenges and um, of, of, you know, neoliberalism, uh, and what uh, Ndongo Sambasila and Daniela Gabor call the Wall Street consensus, why there are kind of innovative projects of, of a green, green economy that might come out of the kind of African context and how we could support those and realize those, right? So all of these are to say that um, it's less concerned, you know, in world making, I'm concerned to think about how telling new histories about our past can open up possibilities in our future in our, about our future this uh, global uh, this issue is more concerned about how the present rife as it is with crisis is also Im embedded in that crisis is our possibilities and possible trajectories that might be investigated that might become particularly important models for us This was 37th and the World. Thank you to Adam Getachew. Please be sure to subscribe, leave a comment and rating on whichever streaming platform you use. To read this interview and other insightful interviews and articles, please check out jagia.georgetown.edu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.